Suppose you found a bag full of money on the side of the road, a cool million dollars in untraceable cash. Would you report it to the police? Should you? Our answer may surprise you. And in our etiquette quick hit today, we talk about the perils and protocol of giving away your surplus garden produce. This is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking discussion about everyday dilemmas. Our goal here is to offer you insights and perspectives on sticky situations that will help you examine your choices and exercise your own ethical muscles. I'm your host, Marna Ashburn. Let me introduce the other members of Ethics and Etiquette. First up is wife, mother, and attorney, Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman. Hi, Kelly. Hi, Marna. Hi, Mike. Hello, everybody. And Mike Derrick, a retired Army officer, combat vet, and father of four. Hi, Mike. Hey, good morning to our listeners, and good morning, Kelly and Marna. Hello and welcome to both of you. Let's get started. What would you do if you had the luckiest day of your life and found a million dollars on the side of the road? Well, this really happened to a family in Virginia. This is from CNN. A Virginia family was just trying to get out of the coronavirus blues by taking a long drive when they found what turned out to be nearly a million dollars in cash in the middle of the road. A car in front of the Shantz family swerved out of the way to avoid a what appeared to be a big bag of trash. The Shantz family, however, didn't have time to do the same. They ran over the bag. Instead of leaving the trash in the road, they stopped, picked it up, and threw it at the back of the truck. Then they saw another bag in the ditch nearby and picked that one up too. After they arrived home later that evening, they were going to throw away the trash from both bags. When they did, it appeared to be mail. Then they went on further investigation and it appeared to be cash money. They called the sheriff. The sheriff went out there and determined that it was in fact cash. It was in two bags and the total was close to a million dollars. Within the two larger bags were plastic baggies and they were addressed with something that said cash vault. The sheriff's department conducted its own investigation before turning it over to the United States Postal Service which is now looking into the matter. Who it actually belonged to, where it was going, the sheriff said, we haven't released any of that information. The Postal Service is now working to get the money back to its rightful owner. It's really a credit to the character and fiber of the family, the sheriff said. I'm sure it'd be difficult to make that decision. It's almost a million dollars in cash, but they did the right thing. Now, last year, Ethics and Etiquette did a show called Finders Keepers, Losers Weepers, And we told you about a Staten Island couple who were doing some landscaping in their backyard and found a half-buried safe containing money and jewelry, about $50,000 worth. The owners of the safe, it turned out, were their neighbors who had been robbed many years earlier. And the neighbors were very happy to get everything back, especially the jewelry, because it was personal and sentimental. But here is a cool million dollars in cash, liquid cash. Does that present a more tempting opportunity for some ethical waviness? Kelly, I'm going to start with you. What do you think? Yeah, this is a really interesting situation. And shout out to the family in Caroline County. Um, I used to live in Hanover County, just south of Caroline County. And Caroline County is just a a beautiful and still quite rural place um, where really a lot of people, everybody kind of knows each other. And so in this situation, the family actually knew one of the sheriff's deputies from their church and sort of chatted with him. And that's how, you know, they, they, they did the right thing. But Caroline County 
for this small rural place. I just want to talk about it for a minute because it's so beautiful. And I think the people are so special. Um, Secretariat is from Caroline County, from Meadow Farm. And one of the most famous Supreme Court cases, Loving versus Virginia, arose from Caroline County. That was where, you know, Virginia had the law banning interracial marriage. Um, and it went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court held that it was unconstitutional. And the Lovings were from an area of Caroline County um, that is well known for, I think, since the 1800s for being a community, kind of a mixed race community, and had been that way for years. So I just thought that was interesting. And I'd throw that out there since it's sort of uh, tangentially related to the scenario. That is interesting. Yeah, yeah, for such a small place. Anyways, as far as the scenario goes, I'm not sure they did the right thing. I don't know that they had any choice. But I think this is an example of no good deed goes unpunished. You know, this family's never going to see any kind of reward for doing the right thing. The government, which is like a black hole, is just going to keep the money. When they say they're looking into the matter, I mean, the USPS can't even deliver the mail. So they're just going to confiscate the money. (laughs) They might kick it back, you know, some to Caroline County. But I feel like the family is entitled to something. You know, many states have statutes that obligate a person to try to identify the owner. But if there's no identifying information there would be no no violation of law. Probably what I would recommend that any family do when it comes to a substantial amount of money is to get with an attorney. Um, and that attorney can communicate with the local police about the sum of money found and perhaps agree on uh, some way to handle the situation. Because I'm afraid that state law, local law, or federal law is going to require that the government or the specific entity gets to keep the money. So the attorney can communicate um, and keep their client's information initially private and say, look, I have this family, they found this money, it appears to be X amount of dollars, they want to do the right thing. However, if nobody steps forward and claims the money, you know, my, my position is they're entitled to it. And then maybe enter into some kind of an agreement in writing um, whereby the family can do the right thing Yet, if nobody claims the money, uh, the family can retain the money. Maybe they want to donate a large part of it, but they are entitled to it. So, Kelly, I've got a, I've got a question for you, Kelly. Can a lawyer in this situation guarantee the an anonymity of that family? Can they maintain that uh, lawyer-client privilege, privileged conversation? Yes. I mean, under legal ethics and your obligation to your client, if your client wants you to keep their their information private, you're required to do so. There are a few exceptions, um, and they generally involve a client sharing with you their plan to commit a future crime. If a client comes into you and they've, for example, killed a number of people, committed a number of heinous crimes in the past, you are obligated to keep that private. It's only when it goes to future acts that you must um, contact the authorities. So in this case, um, there's no future crime that's going to be committed. Uh, There's no evidence that a current crime has been committed. And as their attorney, I would look at the local laws and statutes, and I would contact the police and not identify my clients. Now, if the police somehow, you know, investigate things and sit outside my office and think they determine who the family is. There's nothing I can do about that. But I would keep their information private and try to negotiate a fair arrangement, which allows my clients to do the right thing, but allows them to receive some reward um, for their good acts. 
Well, that's interesting. Uh, and you recommend this for any large amount of money that's found? The rare absolutely. occurrences, I understand. but Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, unless, obviously, if, if the large amount of money has some identifying information, you know, if there's a note or, or a wallet with it, you know, then it's very easy and you, you have to contact that individual or that business and return the money. But assuming it's a large amount of money, it's cash, you can't tell who it belongs to, you certainly can't keep it. You do need to um, figure out what your legal obligation is. And, and I think the best way to do that would be to retain a local lawyer and have them look at the local laws and then try to negotiate on your behalf. Well, I think that's good advice because I don't think you'll ever see any of that money once you turn it in. Yeah, that's fascinating, Kelly. I, I would not have thought of that. No. Wow. Am I glad you're on this podcast? <laughs> Well, what do you think, Mike? What would you do if it happened to you? So it's probably money that was gained through illicit means because, you know, who runs around with two bags of $500,000 each that fall out of your vehicle, okay? Yeah, Just think about Think about that for a minute, okay? I'm really curious about the backstory yeah. there. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's not like, you know, some kid left their gloves on top of the car and the family drove away and the gloves hit the road. I mean, these are two big bags of cash because, you know, if anybody's ever seen, you know, a million in small bills, it's a, it's a significant amount of uh, mass, let's say. So probably gained through illicit means. You know, my reflex would have been, okay, probably just going to turn it in, you know, because... The last thing that any family like that would want would be the the bad guys coming to look for them or, I mean, whatever. You can walk that situation out in your mind a little bit. It's a very interesting angle that you pose here with the uh, hiring an attorney. And I assume you're doing that sort of from an objective point of view. It's not because you're an attorney that you suggest that we hire an attorney. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> It's really good. Finding a million dollars is great for business. <laughs> yeah. What would be your commission on that, Kelly? Um. <laughs> well, I would, you know, that's the other thing, Mike, you, you bring up somebody coming to look for the family. They could turn the million dollars over to the attorney and the attorney could deposit it in their trust account. Um, for safekeeping. Now that would trigger all sorts of, you know, in inquiries. Yeah, there's um, all of a sudden a big paper trail there. As an attorney, I might even, you know, contact the bar because you can call your local bar. Um, in Virginia, they have, um, I think, a couple of employees that are available for complicated ethical situations, and you could pose the exact scenario to them and get their input. But yeah, I mean, that's the other thing. And, and I know you guys are aware of it. You know, you make a cash deposit that's more than $10,000. It triggers a reporting to the federal government um, and the IRS. So. Or pay for a car or some large purchase with cash, $10,000 cash. Exactly. Same thing. Yeah. And then if you, if you wanted to deposit the money, in addition to those issues, you'd you don't want to you want to spread the money into different banks because you want it to be insured by the FDIC so you've got to spread out your deposits and but and i would course, think even that is trackable yeah absolutely i'm just saying you would do that in case the bank goes under so that you've got your money in several different banks which again also is going to look funny to the government and then as i think mike mentioned earlier it's also taxable going to yeah, have to pay taxes right. on it. So that means you're stuck for the rest of your life handing out 10s and 20s. Uh, cut, up your, <laughs> cut up your credit cards. Cut up your credit cards. And, yeah. um, you know, people can then just say, why does he always pay in cash? Um, 
you know. Because he listens to Dave Ramsey. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that what Dave says? Yes, no credit cards. Well, it's interesting. I came across a Reddit thread online which posed this exact question. What what if you found a million dollars? Could you keep it? And how could you do it? And the interesting thing about Reddit is it's anonymous. It's an interesting little window onto the to the id of the psychology in the answers. And there were a lot of suggestions on how you could hide it and spend it. And there were a lot of people who kept repeating, that's illegal, that's illegal, you'll, you'll be found out. <laughs> They'll figure out your your standard of living has uh, increased, and they're going to know something's wrong, and they're going to audit you. And so it was, but it was an interesting read to uh, see all the interesting different strategies offered up to this question. <laughs> you can just go to Reddit and uh, search for a million dollars and see what they said. Yeah, yeah. I mean, money can do funny things, right? Yes, sure can, sure can. Yeah. I mean, to me, of, there's no question the about. Oh, go ahead, Marna. There's no question in my mind that you return it or turn it in. But, Kelly, I, I like the options that you offer uh, in terms of getting a lawyer. And Yeah, I'm not suggesting that you act unethically at all. I, I think we want to act ethically and we want to do the right thing. But because of local laws and because of the way... Um, you know, the government can confiscate illegal gains, and they would take the position that this is illegal, illegal money, that it's related to some type of criminal activity, which frankly makes sense. So I would at least try to advocate for this family, you know, that really should be in some way rewarded for their good acts and see if there's something I could get for them. They're immediately trying to do the right thing, trying to get a little something um, as a thank you. Mike, you were gonna you were gonna say what? Yeah, I just um, you know you mentioned it. I think or you sounded like you were gonna mention it, Marna. But you know what's what's your peace of mind worth? I mean, this is like if you had to manage this for the rest of your life, like you got all this money and you know you should have done something other than keep it, and now you've got to spend it, so you can't make it clear that you came across it in the first place. I mean, that then becomes an ongoing burden that you carry with you for as long as that money remains. And uh, I tell you, there's a whole lot to be said for peace of mind. Is a million dollars worth no peace of mind? That's something I think we have to think about. You do. In fact, in preparation for this podcast, I rewatched the movie A Simple Plan with Billy Bob Thornton and Bill Paxton. I think it came out in the 90s. And the premise of this movie is two brothers and one of their friends are out in the in the woods in Minnesota and they find a crashed plane hidden in the snow and inside the plane is the dead pilot and four million dollars four million dollars and so the three of them hatch this plan to hold on to the money for a couple months and then split it once the story blows over and they do leave a little bit of money in the plane in case the wow. plane is found and it turns out the money was ransom from a kidnapping a botched kidnapping. And then the intrigue begins and their simple plan, the three men, their simple plan starts to unravel almost immediately. And soon the bodies stack up as they try to, you know, cover their tracks and keep this thing going. It's a real cautionary tale for hanging on to found money. <laughs> Can I give you a spoiler? Yeah, please. Spoiler I, alert. I think I'm still going to watch it, Marna. Go ahead. Yeah. Spoiler alert. The last scene is the one surviving brother is uh, burning the entire bag of money in his fireplace, and his wife is trying to stop him, 
and he just keeps throwing her off onto wow. the floor. He keeps wow. burning the money. All right. So what's peace of mind worth, everybody? Yeah. A lot, according to this movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's worth a lot. I, I, I'd agree with that. Yeah. It's hard to put a price on it, I'll tell you that much. Especially in this day and age with this crazy COVID yeah. stuff going on and you know, you look at what your life used to be and the things you used to be able to do and tell you, I think it I think this whole episode may change the way we value certain things in life. It's definitely gonna be a spiritual reset. Yeah. On many levels, I think. All right. Thank you both for that. Stick with us. We'll be right back with a listener email. Welcome back to Ethics and Etiquette. We have some email from a listener in New Mexico. This is in reference to our episode called Accidents, Idiots, and Unexpected Events. In that episode, we talked about a man at a charity event who accidentally spilled red wine on another guest. She was wearing an expensive beaded designer dress costing $1,500, and it couldn't be cleaned. So our question was, is this gentleman responsible to pay for replacing the dress? As I recall, we decided he wasn't responsible, that she should have or get insurance for her expensive clothing if, she, if she's going to be wearing it out in public, and that maybe the man, gentleman and the woman could agree on an amount of money that he could donate to the charity in, in memory of the designer dress. <laughs> so this is from Phyllis. She says, your podcast got me thinking about ordering red wine at large gatherings where there are many people and chances for accidents to happen. I think in the future, I'll refrain from drinking red wine at these events just to be on the safe side. I'm glad we could help you come to that conclusion, Phyllis. And it's not a bad idea. I've actually had wine spilled on me at a wedding reception. It wasn't red wine, it was white wine. And we cleaned it up. But the moral of the story here is drink clear liquor. Gin, vodka, <laughs> white wine. Be on the safe oh, side. Marna. So does that mean, Phyllis, are you no longer going to drink coffee, really hot coffee at uh, public events that you might spill it on somebody? I don't need an answer, Phyllis, but... uh, Makes sense. Yeah, I mean... Or have a lid on it. Right. I remember being at a high school reunion with my wife. So those are those are often tough events. I think everybody can sort of identify with this. You know, your spouse knows everybody and you know no one. And you're kind of like yeah. an exhibit, you know, oh, this is my husband. And then they launch into discussions of 35, 40 years ago. So anyhow, I've, I've stopped going to those. But um, as the husband, let's say. <laughs> Best to but, leave the spouse at home, I've discovered. <laughs> but I was commiserating with another husband sitting beside me, you know, so we found some we, we shared our we, a little shared solace there. And I watched later in the evening as the server came up and she tripped and dumped a pot of hot coffee on his back. Oh my. um, So um, he was okay but we all had suits on so he had several layers of clothing. He wasn't burned. Oh my uh, goodness. So anyhow I haven't seen a red wine debacle but I guess I've seen the coffee debacle. These things happen. Yeah. Just hope nobody gets hurt. 
hurt and burned. Well, thank you, Phyllis. It's good to get, you know, some listener email, everybody, and all our listeners out there. I'd really, I'd, you know, we would love to have you comment or pose some interesting questions for us because uh, you're smarter than we are. Yep. Keep the dialogue going. We love it. I always tell you at the end of the show, I'll tell you right now, you can go to our website, www.ethicsandetiquette.com. You can send us an email or you can leave a voicemail. And please do because we'd love to hear from you. And now let's move on to our latest feature, which we're calling the Etiquette Quick Hit. It's a short scenario you might come across in modern life, and we're going to give you some suggestions on how you can gracefully navigate it. It's the season for backyard harvests of cucumber, zucchini, and tomato. And here are today's quick hits, both about backyard gardens. We have two. The first one was adapted from a blog entry at raiseyourgarden.com. She wrote, My parents have a place in a lakeside community. The previous owners had planted rhubarb, which sprung up every year, but the previous owners were never there. So year after year, the neighbors helped themselves to the rhubarb, figuring it wouldn't get used. Everybody loves rhubarb for pie. But then my parents moved in. The neighbors continued to help themselves to the rhubarb growing on my parents' property. The neighbors never asked. They just took it. True, my parents didn't plant the rhubarb, but they enjoy it, and it is their property. What should my parents do? Kelly, let's move to you, the legal expert. (laughs) I don't know that I'm going to come up with a a legal solution. As you said, clearly the property is theirs. And, you know, anybody that enters without their permission is technically trespassing. First, they have to be notified. But I just think the neighbors are kind of being rude um, unless they don't realize there's been a change in ownership, which is possible. But once they know there's been a change in ownership, they should approach this couple and and ask and tell them what's been going on and ask if we can continue to take the rhubarb. Otherwise, it puts the couple in a tough position because you want to have good relations with your neighbors. You don't want to have any issues, especially when you're just getting, you know, getting off to a new start. Um, But I mean, communication's the key. So if they're really bothered by the fact that people are taking the rhubarb and if there's no rhubarb left for them, I feel silly about this stupid rhubarb, but... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because this kind of thing is not important to me. Oh, but, it's very important, Kelly, but go ahead. I know. I know. I don't understand the ethics or uh, etiquette of gardening, but I think they just have to talk to their neighbors and say, hey, you know, I don't mind you taking, but could you only take this much or some kind of communication about the rhubarb? Uh, you know, if they don't want to approach these folks directly or they're not sure who's taking it, they could even put up a little note or a sign near the rhubarb that's Maybe they could come up with something humorous and cute that kind of gets across, like, don't take all our rhubarb. So, Okay, Mike, how do you, what are your suggestions on how that confrontation could go yeah, so without I was, escalating? I was going to say. Confrontation, that's a big <laughs> word. It is, it is probably too big a word. Wow, yeah, I already mean, ratcheted Communication. Yeah, <laughs> communication, let's call it that. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, this would be a great way to meet your neighbors, but if these people are... Obviously, I mean, you know how people are. I mean, they notice when somebody moves in next door. They know when a house goes up for sale. They've probably already gone to Zillow and seen how much it's sold for. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, think about it. And so they're really kind of, this is a foul. This is really bad form. What they should do is they should take this opportunity to get rhubarb somewhere else, show up at their door of the new people with a rhubarb pie or a rhubarb cobbler and say, hey, welcome to the neighborhood. We love rhubarb. 
and you have the best patch on this side of the lake. And would you mind uh, sharing it with us? You know, that would be the right thing to do, but it sounds like these folks aren't sort of uh, going to play by those rules. So, yeah, I'd put that sign out, and I'd put something cryptic like, you know, uh, this rhubarb not suitable for human consumption <laughs> or rhubarb protected by working dogs or something, <laughs> right. you know? Or stop stealing our rhubarb. (laughs) Well, yeah, but in the interest of good relations going forward, how do we handle this? I think you got to reach out to them and you got to try because keep in mind, you're the new people on the block. Um, You don't know the history there. I mean, this may be something they've been doing for decades. Uh, And typically, vacation communities are different than the communities you live in. At least that's been my experience. And everybody kind of wants to know everybody else. You do have to communicate with them. It's it's a little creepy to have somebody coming in and taking your rhubarb on your land, especially if you value it and appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, it's just hard. Like, I don't know that I would get into it with my neighbors over rhubarb. I would be reluctant. You don't cook with much rhubarb, do you, Kelly? <laughs> no, I don't. Okay. Well, they love I have a, good I have a rhubarb pie. patch. I have a rhubarb <laughs> patch, so I consider myself an expert on this topic. Uh, so. Well, it sounds like you are. So how would you feel if your neighbors came over and helped themselves? Remember what I it's just said about cryptic signs? Yeah, that's yeah, a foul. Yeah. 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 So how about saying, um, look, I, I don't mind sharing my rhubarb, but please come talk to me first. If if it's a really big rhubarb patch, it's it's rhubarb comes up very early and there's lots of it all of a sudden and then it goes away unless you really work to cultivate it and stretch it out over a season. It's kind of like strawberries; it's feast or famine. I definitely think that this is a foul and you have to do something about it because it's just really bad form. And I wouldn't I would be very uncomfortable if somebody was coming on my property and taking what rightfully belongs to me and not telling me about it and just assuming that I think that's that's uh, way beyond the pale. Yeah. And setting up the material for this podcast, I've found on a lot of forums that neighbors do feel it's okay to help themselves to a tomato or basil from somebody else's garden. If there's an abundant crop, they won't miss it. See, I don't get that. That's not right. I don't get that either. I mean, that's just. That, that's stealing, really. As I've told you guys before, Kathy and I live, we literally live in an apple orchard. So we're surrounded on three, two, well, we live on a triangular piece of land. Two sides of it are a working orchard. So, I mean, it's, apples are there all the time when apples are in season. And, uh, you know, our neighbors always kind of go wink, wink, nod, nod. Oh, you must have plenty of apples. And I say, no, no, we don't. You know, we... We only take those that, you know, the drops that hit the ground. We know the orchard owners, and we have a very good relationship with them, and and that's the way we want to keep it. So, All right. Thank you both for yeah. your input on this, from million-dollar fines to rhubarb. Mm-hmm. Covering the gamut today. And here's one more etiquette quick hit. This is actually from my life. A couple years ago, I had a backyard garden, and I had a bumper crop of zucchini one summer. So I gave a bag full to my neighbor, and the next morning, there was a batch of homemade zucchini muffins on my back porch. Now, I thought it was very sweet, but my sister said it violated the protocol of surplus homegrown produce, which is that you never return it in any form to the original gardener. Have you ever heard of this, Mike? You know, I've never heard of that. I just think it's really sweet. I think it's a wonderful thing your neighbor did, and I would take it as such. Let me let me be clear, though. You don't then have any obligation to continue the cycle. You don't need to be doing blueberry muffins and taking them back. 
So you just take the empty pan back to her. The infinite so, cycle. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, those, those are, you get locked into one of those. Those are tough. Yeah. You got to break, got to break the cycle or you'll just be baking for everybody else, you know, so. Well, I did think it was very sweet. And if she believed in oil and sugar in her muffins, it would have been even sweeter. But <laughs> she didn't. <laughs> so they weren't that good. But at that uh, point, really, I was—I had so much zucchini, like zucchini for dinner every night. I was about to turn into a zucchini. So I can understand how that protocol started. So there's something they say around here where we are rich in zucchini in this, as I'm sure every <laughs> other part of rural america is but when we go to a farmer's market or you know we have this outdoor brewery down the road and you know you often a hot summer night you think you might want to leave your windows open of your of your car when you get there you don't never leave your windows open because if you leave your windows open when you come back to your car at the end of the farmer's market or the end of the evening you're going to find a zucchini on your front seat <laughs> Uh, somebody trying to get rid of zucchini. Yeah, they're just putting zucchini <laughs> through empty windows, empty, open windows. Of That's empty funny. <laughs> A zucchini bandit, reverse bandit. Yeah. I can't believe we're talking about rhubarb and zucchini. <laughs> and zucchini. Come on, Kelly. Come on, and, Kelly. And now we're going to move on to green tomatoes. Just <laughs> oh, kidding. Lord. Just kidding. We're done this with is, the gardening. Kelly, this is life in rural America. You city-fied folk, you know? I mean... <laughs> I guess I don't know what I'm missing. <laughs> you're missing vegetables with the sun still on them. That's what you're missing. Yeah. Yeah. Nothing it's like a pretty it. wonderful time of year, though. I mean, we have more greens in the house that and stuff that was grown, and we don't garden it ourselves. We're part of a local cooperative farm. I cannot keep up. We get a bucket every Thursday of interesting things. You never know what's going to be in it. I just cannot cook enough vegetables, so I give them away, which is hard. But my son is always interested in the vegetables, so I give them to my youngest son, which is really cool. He lives in a frat house, and I guess they really, really like bok choy. So, Oh, really? Yeah, they I'm get surprised. a lot of bok choy, those guys. <laughs> Who would well, have thought? College kids eating bok choy, but there we go. Too much homegrown produce is a wonderful problem to have. I agree. Thanks for joining us today. Please head over to our website, www.ethicsandetiquette.com, if you'd like to send an email or leave us a voicemail. If you want to support what we're doing by subscribing to our podcast, we'd appreciate it. And if you took time to leave a positive review, that would be great. Thanks to all of you who keep recommending Ethics and Etiquette to your friends and family. For Kelly Halligan-Zimmerman and Mike Derrick, I'm Marna Ashburn, and this is Ethics and Etiquette, a thought-provoking dialogue about everyday dilemmas. Thanks for joining us, and please join us again next week for an all-new episode. See you then.